The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. Andy and I went on a whirlwind trip, leaving Friday and going to Daibosatsu, and then uh, early uh, Saturday going to a place where he's been practicing since, um, we were trying to remember, early 80s, Gangnam Tibetan Retreat Center that's a neighbor of Daibosatsu. So here are these two Buddhist temples in the middle of nowhere, just stones throw away from each other. So I went to uh, do Doksan with the residents on Friday night. And uh, the residents, well, mostly they're interns right now. We have this whole crop of terrific young men who are between 18 and 25. And one of them's Joe Kay, doing the Han. Uh, you know, they're all doing all these wonderful things. One is uh, Jisha. And uh, they're going on. Uh, some have to finish college, and others have graduated, and they're going on to grad school. But it was really quite wonderful to meet with them and the few summer present residents. And uh, the next morning, the reading was from Thich Nhat Hanh's Silence. And I, I wanted to share a little passage with you because it's so um, valuable, a reminder for us as we are doing our Zazen practice. Thich Nhat Hanh says, in order to practice right speech, we need to first take the time to look deeply into ourselves and into whoever is in front of us so that our words will be able to create mutual understanding and relieve the suffering on both sides. How many times we have experienced this where we are talking with someone and one of us is going on about something, and the other is going on about something also at the same time. Maybe not out loud, but there's no rapport at all because no one is listening, right? Very often this is the case. He says, when we speak, of course we are only saying what we think is correct, but sometimes because of the way we say it, the listener can't take it in. So our words don't have the desired effect of bringing more clarity and understanding to the situation. And this is another example of skillful means. How can we say something in a way that can be heard? Right? There are many ways you can just speak from whatever emotion you happen to be having at that time or whatever the story that you've been involved in, which takes precedence over whatever it is that's happening in the present moment, right? But how subtle 
to find the way to say something so that it can be heard. How many of you have felt that this has been a difficult matter for you? Not for you? No. You, you can speak. And, <laughs> and then he says, we need to ask ourselves, am I speaking just to speak? You know, like you want to hear the sound of your own voice because you feel less lonely? Or am I speaking because I think these words can help someone heal? Wow. Right? After all, everyone is suffering. So if we're going to use words, shouldn't they come from this motivation? Not from the motivation of, I want to get my point across. We ask ourselves, who is speaking? That lessens the likelihood of speaking from that point of view, right? I. So he says, when our words are spoken with compassion based on love, and on our awareness of our interconnectedness, then our speech may be called right speech. When we give an immediate reply to someone, usually we are just reeling off our knowledge or reacting out of emotion. And I think this is something also we may, we may all have been... Um, I don't want to use the word guilty, but anyway, I'll use the word guilty. Guilty of, you know, that um, there's no pause. Somebody says something and we feel we have to come in right then and there with our own uh, view on it or our own experience, our own knowledge. When we hear the other person's question or comment, we don't take the time to listen deeply and look deeply into what has been shared. We just volley back a quick rejoinder. That's not helpful. The next time someone asks you a question, don't answer right away. This takes a lot of courage. You know, someone's put a question out there, and they think, well, maybe you know something about this. And you're like, So you're thinking, well, maybe they think I don't know. Wow, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> he says, receive the question or sharing and let it penetrate you so that the speaker feels that he or she has really been listened to. All of us, but especially those whose profession is to help others can benefit from training ourselves in this skill, we must practice in order to do it well. And then he says, having the space to listen with compassion is essential to being a true friend, a true colleague, a true parent, a true partner, and I would add a true student of Dharma. We are each other's spiritual friends. 
which is the most remarkable relationship we could possibly have. He says, a person doesn't need to be a mental health professional to listen well. In fact, many therapists aren't able to do it because they are so full of suffering. They study psychology for many years and know a great deal about techniques, but in their hearts they have suffering that they haven't been able to heal and transform. Or they haven't been able to offer themselves enough joy and play to balance out all the pain they take in from clients so they don't have the space to help very effectively. People pay these therapists a lot of money and go back to see them week after week hoping for healing, but counselors can't help if they haven't been able to listen to themselves with compassion. Wonderful passage, isn't it? We all are, in one way or another, called upon to be someone's therapist, some friend who is suffering, somebody who asks us for some kind of attention. And to just remember, we have to listen to ourselves. This is what our practice is all about, to be able to really heal from within so that we can feel it's okay to be silent. It's okay not to know. It's okay just to listen. Great underrated activity of non-activity. So then we went to Gangyam which was celebrating its 40th anniversary. So these two temples, same month, 40 years of practice. And the first part of the day was given over to uh, Guru Puja and Sag offerings. And many, many wonderful passages. The English uh, was printed out along with the Tibetan, which is very hard to follow, especially when there are six Tibetan Rinpoches going through it at breakneck speed. And we had also some monks and some Tibetan people who had come. In, so this group of, of Tibetan Rinpoches the lead teacher uh, leading the ceremony was Trijang Rinpoche, who has a place in Vermont, some of you may recall, that uh, we went to the opening of his center some years ago. And the other most important person there, I guess I should say, was the Tulku, who is Domo Geshe Rinpoche's um, reincarnate Lama, who is now 13. So the two of them were leading, and the two of them have this um, uncanny relationship whereby 
at one point, one, when I say at one point, I mean in one life, one lifetime, one of them was the teacher of the other. And then another lifetime, it reversed. So Trijang Rinpoche was the one who identified Chokchul Rinpoche as the Lama, as the incarnate Lama of Domo Geshe Rinpoche, who was the founding teacher there. And as many of you know, we, uh, in our dedication, we include Domo Geshe Rinpoche when we are doing uh, a special memorial dedications. And he passed away on the eve of 9-11. I always think of him there with his arms wide open to help those who were killed to cross over. He was a really remarkable teacher. I was lucky enough to meet him on several occasions. And so some of the people who spoke after the ceremony included Sheila Hickson, who had identified um, a place in the Catskills to look at after working with a realtor. They, Lex Hickson, some, let's see, I don't know if any of you was here for the 1993 100 Years of Zen in America celebration that we put on before your time. He was one of the speakers, and he is a well-known author. So we heard from Sheila, and we heard from Philip Glass, who's been uh, I guess he's been, he was the first American student of Domo Geshe Rinpoche, having met him in India in the 60s. You know Philip Glass? Personally, no. But as a composer, yes, right? And musician. So anyway, the stories were all, all had this uncanny tinge. You know, after chanting the uh, puja and sog offerings, you just feel, well, some of you have heard Tibetan chanting, yes? You just feel that your um, mind has been completely, there are no words, but I'll just use the word opened, completely open. There is no roof to your head at all. So. The uncanny seems as natural as, you know, the delicious meal that was served. And there really isn't any difference. But in any case, there were a number of stories told, and many of them had to do with Domo Geshe Rinpoche and this place. So evidently there was a, a realtor who was showing um, Philip Glass and Sheila and Lex around, and they had looked at a number of places with Rinpoche, and at all of them, they were, no, no, this isn't it, no, 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 this isn't it. And finally, he refused to get out of the car, no, just not it. So they said, well, Rinpoche, could you just give us a little, just a little hint of what we're supposed to be looking for? 
And he said, well, there are, two, there are two stone pillars with lions on the top. And there are two other stone pillars with peacocks. And there's a little pond by a big house. And surrounding it are hills on three sides that look like lotus flower. <laughs> okay, so they went to the realtor and imparted this information. And the realtor said, there is a place for sale that has those columns and a big house and I think there's a pond in back of it, and we could go look. So off they went, and Rinpoche said, yes, immediately, <laughs> yes, this is the place. And then they were all so happy, and then he said, but where's the lake? <laughs> they went back to the realtor, where's the lake? The realtor said, oh, it used to have a lake, but the people bought that part of the property and don't want to sell it. It's across the road and hidden up in the hill. Oh, they went back to Rinpoche. He said, go tell them we're buying it. Sure enough, people said, sure, we're happy to sell it. So then they came to back to the original, to the house to, to look around more and go inside and someone comes out who then greets Rinpoche in Tibetan. So evidently there was someone there who had studied Tibetan Buddhism and the house was full of all kinds of books on Tibetan Buddhism in Tibetan. This person had learned the language. So, you know, there were all these wonderful correspondences. And at an informal break, I um, met up with somebody I'd known. There were many people there that, that I knew over all these years. Uh, some of the people practicing with Domo Geshe Rinpoche, like Margot Wilkie, who passed away at the age of 100 and almost 101 recently, some years ago. I can't keep track of time. There were people there who were there in flesh. There were people there who were exactly there, but all over. She was one of them. Um, who had combined both Zen practice and uh, Tibetan practice. Sheila Hickson is another. She was recently made a sensei by um, Bernie Glassman. So one of them, whom I hadn't seen since Margot's funeral, was um, Olivia Ames Hoblitzel, and I know I read to you a passage from her book, 10,000 Joys and 10,000 Sorrows, and I think you're the one who met her in New York City. She was, she was doing some... It was here. So um, Jikyo was kind enough to uh, bring me a copy of the book, which he signed. So anyway, I saw her, and we had a long talk. She has a friend who is right now in transition, 
dying. And this book, I remembered um, so deeply, I was so deeply moved by it. The book is about her husband's having Alzheimer's and both of them being uh, Buddhist practitioners and working together in this long process of gradually, gradually, less memory, less ability to, to be present, less, less ability to connect with what we call uh, this reality. So she was trying to shepherd him through worse and worse dis, uh, kind of disasters. And she, she said, in spite of all I knew about stress management and relaxation and working with the mind, I could not stop the momentum of catastrophic thinking as I inwardly prepared for another episode. And perhaps some of you experienced something like this, not necessarily with Alzheimer's, but maybe with your own illness or maybe with someone else whom you deeply care for. So she um, decided to go to retreat at Domo Geshe Rinpoche's place for six days. And she writes, the word Rinpoche means teacher in Tibetan. I had met him a few years before at a time when I was still recovering from spiritual disillusionment, having spent many years in a meditation tradition which had refused to acknowledge its own darkness, a source of suffering to many former devotees. He, Rinpoche, was a hidden teacher, no scene around him, no public teachings. There were only two other people there, Anne and Danielle, who often come to our events at Daibosatsu, helped him to run a beautiful place beside the Beaverkill River to which people found their way to be in his gentle, quiet presence. I trusted Rinpoche as a spiritual friend and considered his place to be one of my refuges. I felt as though he had extended a compassionate wing over me, which he did to everyone. I had heard that the Tibetan and Chinese students rarely asked questions of him, but my friend Margot, who had known him for many years, explained that if you wanted to receive any teachings, you had to ask. And I remember what you felt immediately when you were with him was this kind of deep listening that we were just talking about, that Thich Nhat Hanh was writing about. There was no agenda. There was nothing to push forth. There was just this inconceivable stillness and care. So given how persistent the subject of death had been for me, I decided to write a letter to clarify my own thinking. She wrote in her cabin during the retreat uh, as a way of getting to the issues on her mind. And then she went off to meet with him for tea. 
Our conversation started with the subject of the deer who wandered fearlessly around the place. They would come up to the house in search of handouts, usually apples, which they ate from Rinpoche's hands. I told them about my encounter the day before with a doe down by the river who had allowed me to approach her ever so slowly, my hand extended, holding a clump of meadow grass. For her, it had been a delicate dance between furtiveness and trust until that moment when I felt her soft muzzle pushing into my palm as she gathered up my grass offering. And I really like what she says here about furtiveness and trust. And I think we're all like that deer, going to a spiritual practice, being with a spiritual friend, a teacher. There is this furtiveness. You understand what the word furtiveness means? You're not sure you can. You're just maybe a pulling back. Okay? Maybe closer than not so sure. And then trust. Somehow there is this underlying trust that is entered into. And then she started talking about the letters she had written and about how her husband had begun talking about death and the possibility of an early way out. I told Rinpoche that I was perplexed about my role in this and how to support him in whatever he might decide. When I paused, Rinpoche replied quietly, it all depends on a person's nature, on a person's karma. That's all he said. He didn't take a position. He didn't elaborate. His simple statement reoriented me to the perspective I had held then lost several times during those last few years. Rinpoche's statement was like the gentle adjustment of a ship's compass. Now it was a matter of trust for me. Reflecting on his answer, I saw the invitation to have faith. Ultimately, the remainder of my husband's life would unfold in accordance with his nature and karma. I no longer had to shoulder the burden of responsibility that I had unwittingly taken on. When I left and, end and headed home, I had no idea of what lay ahead, but felt accompanied by trust and compassionate holding. So speaking of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, maybe you've heard the ancient Buddhist expression, 84,000 Dharma gates. 
There are 84,000 pores of our skin, it is said. Probably this is based on medicine that is no longer acknowledged to be correct. But if we just take that as a metaphor, the 84,000 pores of our skin can be seen as these gates, right? And sometimes it is said in Buddhism that there are 84,000 obstacles and sometimes 84,000 dharma teachings. And these 84,000 pores of our skin, what are they doing right now? Breathing. Hmm? Breathing. Breathing. They're breathing. And they, when we are chanting, when we really give ourselves completely to chanting, they are resonating with the sound of the sutras. So we are breathing the sutras. The sutras are coming and going through these 84,000 pores. And if we think, yes, these openings in our skin are, it's a two-way, two-way street, right? Things come in, things go out. And whether it's the Dharma teachings coming in or the obstacles of samsara coming in. What's that depend on? Think about the Dhammapada. The mind. Whether something is experienced as an obstacle or a teaching is up to us, right? Everything is a teaching. Obstacles are our best teachers. But we typically don't see it that way. and We get caught up in negativity, right? And we feel sorry for ourselves. Oh, all these terrible things are entering through the 84,000 pores of my skin. We don't put it that way, but we tend to think, poor me, this is happening to me. And we forget. It's totally up to us whether our karma is enslaving us or whether we are receiving the teachings that we need and therefore are filled with gratitude 
and therefore are able to extend this gratitude through listening to those around us. The stillness of our practice allows us to feel this really deeply. And take the time and the space to be present for another. And the thing I came away with most strongly after the ceremonies of yesterday morning at Ranyam, throughout all the English translations, what I came away most strongly feeling was the absolute necessity for dedication to our practice. You know, there are 10 of us here in this room. And each one of us has this extraordinary opportunity to feel this dedication and to carry it and to uphold it and to return again and again to the understanding that we have been given this human birth and that it's very precious and rare And we can't squander it, even for a moment. We may be sleepy. They didn't get to bed till 4 a.m. after traveling around and chopping their little hearts out all day yesterday in New Jersey. <laughs> so we may come to the Zendo feeling like, oh, God, if I can just have a little nap here. And that's fine. Be here, however it is that you are here, and you will find that just being here changes your mind. Something about being here. Even if you're only being here for five seconds out of that one sitting, those five seconds are extraordinary. It's not a matter of duration. It's a matter of really being and then what? When you go out and you go into your the demands of your everyday lives to really feel, oh, this is what I am here for. And next week, almost all of us will be away for a wedding at Dabasatsu. How many of you will be here next Sunday? 
Raise your hands. We need you. Okay. Really be here. You will be leading Sunday morning. You will be ministering to those who come. There may be one or two others you don't know. Could happen. So be here. And this is what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter how many people join us. It doesn't matter how many people are away on vacation. It doesn't matter how many people are in the hospital dying. Everyone has to be here for everyone else. Because we are all dying. And we have to be here for our own dying and the dying of all those who are suffering. Even though we don't even know their names, we didn't chant for them. But they too are here and need us to listen deeply. So with dedication, let us continue.